If you're anything like me, you spent your childhood assuming that one day you'd meet your Prince Charming. You'd get married, you'd have a nice house in the suburbs, a dog, a career, and a couple of kids. It never crossed your mind that Prince Charming wouldn't come along, or that tragically you'd lose him before his time, or that your marriage wouldn't work out, or even that your biological clock would have other ideas. Or maybe you never really wanted that sort of happily ever after. Maybe you never wanted a man, but you did know you always wanted children. We're living in an age where for the first time, women can embrace motherhood on their own terms. They no longer have to put their lives on hold waiting for the right man, or settling for someone who they know isn't right for them, just so they can become a mother. More women than ever before are embarking on the journey to become what's known as a solo mother by choice. And while for a lot of us it doesn't feel like a choice, but more a necessity, the bottom line is there are now options for you to be able to fulfill your dreams of motherhood if the traditional route isn't playing out as expected. The No Need for Prince Charming podcast will share stories of Australian women who have successfully become solo mothers by choice. They each have a unique story as to why they decided to pursue motherhood in this way and the journey they had to go through to make this dream a reality. The hope is that by sharing these stories, you'll have the knowledge and the confidence to embark on this amazing journey yourself if you determine it's the right one for you. In the words of Walt Disney, all of our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. All you need is faith, trust, and a little bit of pixie dust. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Elise, who has a gorgeous eight-month-old daughter named Eve. Welcome to the podcast tonight, Elise. I'd love to start by hearing what you went through and what made you make the decision to become a solo mum by choice. Thank you. I'd love to share my story. Um, I was one of those people who just always wanted to be a mum and, um, you know, when people were booking trips and organizing university and doing all of that sort of thing, I was just saying, I just want to be a mum and I was a bit of a freak in that way compared <laughs> to everyone else. And, um, and you know, that would have been when I was, say, 20 or something. And then here I am at the time, you know, getting to my late 30s and not having met someone. Um, you know, the dating world was horrible <laughs> and, you know, common decency is out the window with these people, ghosting yeah. and all the revolting things that um, – you know, really your, your confidence can take a real beating on on these dating sites and you've really got to be in the right frame of mind. Um, otherwise, it can be quite damaging, I think. Um, and when you're working full-time, it's kind of a full-time job in itself to manage the app, yeah. the, you know, Tinder or whatever you want to be on. So um, I kind of got to about 39 and I thought, all right, I think I'd better freeze my eggs. Um and, and even at 39, it was getting on, um, you know, and really I think your decline is 36, 37, your, your eggs really are dwindling and the quality of them are, is really dropping away. And so I got cracking and um, did my first round um, and I only got five eggs and five was okay, but I thought, hmm, I probably should do a second round just to get um, another another batch because I, I felt like five wasn't many to play with. Um, Were they giving so you a, good guidance about what you should be aiming for at your age? Uh, well, no, not really because everyone's so different. Like a, a girlfriend of mine who was the same age froze her eggs the year before and she got something like 20, you know. Um, so you, you, there's not a normal number I don't think and it's all down to your genetics and health and you know all sorts of bits and bobs and so I got another five in the second um stim cycle that I did and so I was comfortable that 10 would be enough and I sort of stopped at that mm -hmm. but I think at the time in terms of doing something with those eggs I felt like a loser to be embarking on it by myself at that point yeah um I still perhaps thought that I had time to meet someone but I think you know that pressure um you know on on yourself and then on anyone that you're meeting you know you're not just meeting someone for a coffee you're you're really looking them over and um you know you might not even be looking at them with the right lens so I think um yeah, I, I was disappointed, I guess, in myself, maybe with choices over the years. Um, 
that I was even in that position. And so, yeah, it wasn't sitting well with me, but I knew that I, I wanted to be a mum and um, I knew that I needed to do something about it. So the other issue, aside from feeling like a loser, <laughs> was, um, was that I didn't have family that close by. My mum my and my brothers um, were about 35-minute drive away, so I was a little bit isolated in terms of any support that I would have um, around me, which was obviously a detractor as well. So a couple of years later, I was about 41 and I started to look at um, picking it up and doing something with it because obviously another two years had gone by, still hadn't met anyone. Um, so at 39 when you felt like a loser, <laughs> had it crossed your mind that you would use a sperm donor or it's just this is just my safety net for when I meet someone? Yeah, thought it was a safety net at 39 yeah but by the time I started looking into it at 41 it was to use a sperm donor yeah and so I got as far as doing the required counseling that you've got to do because you've got to kind of pass the counseling um to get your hands on the sperm donor list um and when I looked at that list I really balked at it I um it was it was really shocking to me. Um, there was only maybe a handful of Caucasians, and you know, it's, I don't think it's unusual. It's really in, important to a lot of people that their child looks like them, or yeah. you know, fits in with with their family, so they don't feel you know like the black sheep or whatever. Um, and just looking down the list, I, I just it was like you were looking at the good on paper guy, you know, because um, you're just looking at height, build, colouring, religion, you know, it's it's a very, uh, I, I just looked at the list and I, I wasn't comfortable and, and none of the guys really stood out and, and it really just was a bit off-putting at the time and, mm actually right around this time I met someone online and I was really open with him about what I had been doing um, with this process and um, and this guy English was his second language and when I told him about the sperm donor thing he said you know it's it's artificial was the word and artificial was obviously it's the translation, translation. yeah but it was the the word that I needed to hear to just stop me in my tracks of, of going down that path because I was already teetering on the edge and that just was all I needed to sort of go right. No, that's not what I want for now. Yeah. So anyway, he and I started seeing each other and next minute I'm pregnant. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, naturally, yeah. And um, and so, and I, you know, I had never had a problem. Like, fertility wasn't an issue. It's just that I hadn't met the person. Well, not that I was aware, but <laughs> as in fertility wasn't the issue at that point. So we fell pregnant naturally, very early, surprising, um, and we were both excited and then it got to about six weeks and I miscarried. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it had happened so quickly, I was confident that we could get pregnant again. Mm-hmm. And so we went along to the gynecologist slash IVF specialist who I froze my eggs with and had a chat with him about things. And we fertilized eggs and I did a stim cycle to get more eggs. Now, there was no tests done of anyone to see if there was any issues. We did two embryo transfers, one after the other, but didn't go anywhere, Mm -hmm. Um, didn't take, didn't result in a pregnancy. And the specialist said, it's just the numbers playing out due to your age. Right. And 
I think it was the third transfer that we did um, and I was bleeding obviously because my period had started, it hadn't gone anywhere again and I called his rooms to say, well, what are we doing, what are next steps and I didn't even get a call back and, you know, I had this stupid loyalty to this specialist slash gynecologist which I think some women do um for some reason this this loyalty that was ridiculous when I look back on it you know I was wasting perfectly embryos um and one of my cousins had used a different specialist and she had been saying to me for ages you've got to go to this guy Mm -hmm. and because I had this stupid loyalty to the previous um specialist I wasn't doing anything about it. But then when I didn't get the call back, I thought, what are you being loyal to this guy for? He couldn't care less. Yeah. Yeah. So I was really, um, I was really cross that I hadn't done something about it sooner. So we went to see the new specialist and, um, you know, it always takes a bit of time to get, get in to see these guys. They're really busy. So I think it, it was a, was maybe about a three-month wait before I could get an appointment with the new specialist. And one thing that I'll say um, is there are specialists and there are specialists. Yeah. And, you know, just because they've got that word in their title does not make them special in any way <laughs> um, because, you know, the difference between the first guy and the second guy, they were just night and day yeah. different the, the second guy was much more progressive and doing things that um other specialists just wouldn't do or will be doing in five years time um so the new guy straight off the bat did um blood tests for for both of us and mm-hmm. and other other tests and it was found um, that my partner and I had a DQ alpha gene in common, um, which was causing the miscarriages. Oh, wow. So by this stage, there'd been um, the natural pregnancy and, and a miscarriage. Then there'd been a couple of failed attempts. And then there'd been a second pregnancy, which also bombed out at um, six weeks. So... This DQ alpha gene, and I'm I'm reading what it does. It it doesn't impact the health of your embryo or your baby. It's normally something in the sperm's DNA sends a signal to the uterus that it's a foreign body. The embryo is okay, allowing it to implant. Um, the uterus then fails to recognize the embryo as a separate body, instead seeing as seeing it as its own self. Um, and so the immune system kicks in with the natural killer cells to eliminate the embryo. Um, and, and there's this treatment that was called LMIT. Um, and it was also known as LIT, which is lymphocyte immunization therapy. And so what, um, what happens is you, um, they take blood from, um, from male, um, they take the white blood cells and then they inject them under the female's skin on her arm yeah um and that treatment happens twice over a fortnight and it lasts about six months and so it sort of tricks your immune system um and and your immune system desensitizes to the issue wow so um the first transfer so by now this is round seven including the simulated cycles to get the to get the eggs in the first place um for the freezer um the first transfer didn't result in a pregnancy and actually i woke up on christmas day with this huge migraine and and really heavy bleeding um so that was um crappy timing and we had my partner's um mum out from brazil for that christmas so it was a shame um you know put a bit of a, a dampener on things because i know that she would have loved to have shared in fact she came to the embryo transfer day which was quite funny when I think about it because um you know not many mother-in-laws would be 
present at the <laughs> impregnation <Actual of> the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah so so that was a real shame um we actually went straight into um round eight with my next cycle yeah um and we put two embryos in because as my specialist said we we just need one to take um and so this was in january put the two embryos in and they were the last of my eggs so it was the last two um that i had had in the freezer um and it worked i was I was pregnant um, and it was twins. Um, so they both, you know, wow. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that was, a you know, uh, my partner was excited. I was apprehensive um, mm-hmm. because, you know, one would have been more than enough. Um, but sadly, as sort of time went on, I think we got to about, oh, maybe it was two months in um and there were the the twin one of the twins um had demised so one was stronger and one wasn't and your body just sort of absorbs the 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 failed embryo so um we were down to having the single singleton as they call them um and you know, things were starting to get exciting. I was starting to show. Um, I didn't really start telling people until about 16 weeks because of the, the previous couple of miscarriages. Um, but not long after 16 weeks, um, I started having some bleeding. Mm-hmm. And um, I can remember one horrendous day I was at work and, um, you know, you, you obviously don't want to look down on the loo and and see that and I think anyone who's been through it um would you know understand (laughs) it's just not what you want to see um and um that particular day I I just hightailed out of there and um I went straight to the pregnancy assessment unit at the hospital which um so by this stage I had been seeing an obstetrician that my specialist had referred me to and, and he um, he specialises in high-risk pregnancies, mm-hmm. um, which, which is lucky because that's exactly where we were headed. And um, when I went to the pregnancy assessment unit, everything looked um, fine with, with the baby, but um, they did say that the, the fluid around the baby was low um and um then i went for a further scan with a, a specialist scanning um guy and he confirmed that the fluid was low and it seemed that i had a leak in the placenta mm-hmm. um the leak in the placenta later we we found was likely because of the demise twin um okay. affecting affecting the placenta so um, I went and saw my obstetrician um, and I just had happened to have taken photos of what had been happening because the bleeding was getting worse and it was, I don't know how graphic we want to get, but it was, it was quite chunky. Showed him a picture and he said, he said, I'm putting you on bed rest um, immediately. So no more work. You can forget that. Um, basically, uh, they need you to get to 25 weeks for it to be a, a viable pregnancy. Um, and I think I was around 18 weeks by this stage. Um, another thing that he had warned me about with a leak in the placenta is that the risk of infection is really high. Um, and he explained that it was, it was like a bushfire when it, when it would hit, um, and so that was in the back of my mind at all times. So bed rest, um, I had weeks, you know, to, to get to um, 
the magic 25 weeks and even 25 weeks, you know, that's a very little baby. Um, and, you know, even getting to 25 weeks doesn't guarantee, you know, a, a healthy baby physically, mentally, um, you know, all, all of that. And one day I just, I was having pains um, in my stomach and I was out and about with, with mum and um, these pains went on all day and I, I was feeling anxious about it and my obstetrician said to go back to the pregnancy assessment unit at the hospital for them to monitor. Um, and everything with the baby was perfect like, and, and at every scan um everything checked out uh milestones were being met exactly where they should everything with the baby was was perfect um and so at the pregnancy assessment unit um they they had been going backwards and forwards with my obstetrician um while the they were doing these these tests and whatnot and um he said look you've got an appointment with me in the morning um and he his rooms were opposite the hospital um so he said you know there's a bed free if you want to stay in in hospital and you know we live up in the dandenongs and you know it was mum and my partner and i we undenied for a good 40 minutes i reckon before Mm -hmm. we could decide what to do and you know some angel was watching over me um and said to stay um so I stayed the night in the hospital I was perfectly fine and then I woke up in the morning maybe about seven o'clock and actually got up out of bed to put the light on and open my door so that they could see I was awake for breakfast like I was feeling that fine I was ready to eat and um I got up for the loo and on my way back from the bathroom I just got overcome um with the infection that he had mentioned might happen um and literally in a matter of it was almost like one second two seconds from the top of my head right down to my toes I was sweating and um, my vision went funny and I managed to make my way back to the bed to press the emergency button. And as I said, it was about seven o'clock and by another stroke of luck, my obstetrician was already in the hospital, Mm. um, which was, I I don't know if that was usual for him, but um, he, uh, the nurse got him, right away and he just said this is the infection we have to get you to the birthing suites so I had to message my partner and my mum and say um you better get in here um so uh it was straight to the birthing suites and um you know when by this stage it's it's 20 weeks six days um and so, you know, there's no magic way for for that baby to get out other than birth. Um, and uh, so um, I think I was in labour for almost the whole day. Um, I felt like at one point it just felt to me like the midwives thought that I wasn't trying um, because I just wasn't getting anywhere and it shouldn't have been taking so long. Um her it was a girl um, to be born and um, it got to must have been like about five o'clock I was losing a lot of blood throughout the day and um, I think it was about five o'clock my obstetrician came in and he could see that she was stuck which is why I wasn't getting anywhere Um, and because of all the gas I'd been taking i I wasn't feeling things, um, but, you know, for my mum and my partner to have been there all day, I can't imagine what, you know, it was bad enough for me going through it, much less um, them watching on um, helplessly. Uh, yeah. It would have been 
you know, I know to this day it affects him. Um, so, yeah, it, it was horrendous. So I had to get rushed to emergency surgery to um, to to have her and to have um, a couple of transfusions. And um, I think, you know, in, in some weird way to say, I feel like, my grief would have been much worse if I had have been able to birth her myself and and see her that way. Um, so I think you know when I came when I woke out of um, out of it, um, you know my partner and my mum were able to look at her and were, they had brought her out. Um, and I was just too out of it at that point. Um, but I think um, it was maybe about 2 a.m. Um, and I was there by myself and, you know, they were coming in and checking on me um, pretty regularly and um, the, they being the midwives. And um, I said to the midwife, can you please bring her to me to see Um and that was really surreal um, to to have that experience. But I think being able to see her and hold her um, just made you realize that it was that she was that she was real. Because I think you go through an experience like that, and the whole thing just seems like a, a, a bad dream. Coming home was um, pretty pretty awful because you know your your body looks like you've had a baby. It feels like you've had a baby, certainly, um, uh, but but you have nothing to show for it. Um, and um, I I couldn't face going back to work. I think in the end I had I think I had six weeks off. Um, and I guess it was eight week, eight weeks, including the bed rest. Um, my employer was really, really supportive, um, and they gave me the time of sick leave, which was really generous of them. Um, so at least I wasn't having to worry about that side of things. And you know, there was just um, days where I couldn't get out of bed and. Um, my partner and mum were my mum were co coordinating so that I wasn't here by myself. Um, you know, he had to go out or or whatever. Um, yeah, it was a a really shitty time. So that was that was poor little Beatrice. And um, I guess if you fast forward two years, I'm 44 by this stage. I'm single. Um, and I'm ready to get the path, um, get back onto the path of motherhood. Um, I had no frozen eggs left because Beatrice was my, my last of my eggs. I tried to do a, an egg collection. Um, I knew that at 44, I was kidding myself, but yeah. I felt like I had to give it one chance and no surprise that. Um, when I went to do the scan, there was no decent follicles, so they cancelled the the round, and I was furious. Like I was not furious at them; I was just furious. Like probably one of the angriest that I've been in my life, and you know I probably shouldn't have driven home. I was <laughs> not driving safely. I was just I was pissed off. I was like, why is this? the case for me you know it was all I ever wanted and so the specialist that I had been seeing the IVF specialist he had a setup in Greece and um and you could get donor egg and donor sperm from there um the probability of achieving a pregnancy was in the 70s so very high wow, really? um, yeah um and I I looked into it really seriously I think um, 
the main thing that was getting me excited was I'd never been to Greece or the island, so I was sort of looking at it as <laughs> a it holiday. could be a cool holiday <laughs> at the same time. Um, but in reality, it felt like a lot of pressure to fly to the other side of the world to try and make it happen. Um, you know, a country I'd never been to, I don't speak the language, um, you know, what if it didn't work? Does that mean I have to stay another two weeks and do it again? You know, all of these what-ifs. Well, that option was taken off me because COVID happened. Um, no travel. So, you know, the the niggle um, was sort of nipped in the bud um, and that was the end of that. And I think, um, you know, it's one thing to be using donor sperm as a single parent or as a solo mum. Um, but when you've got to think about egg, egg, egg donation as well, it's, it's really confronting and, um, and, and it, it's, you're really facing your ego, um, in a lot of ways because people are, you know, always going to look at you and, and look at your child and say, Oh, you know, she's got your eyes or, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. And, um, you know, yeah, you've really got to have a bit of a look at yourself, good hard look at yourself to come to the decision of, okay, I really want this no matter what. Um, and, and I think one thing that I really learned through the whole process is that the further along you get, um, the more you have to broaden your mind. Um, because, you know, thinking back to that 39, 40, 41-year-old balking at a sperm donor list, then that's the least of my problems, worrying about a sperm donor list. And then you've got to think, what do I do about an egg? I'll, you know, back then I only want to use my own eggs and, and I couldn't do that anymore. So, you know, you're open to that again. And so I think, um, as your options start to narrow, you, you do have to open your open your mind um, a little bit to it all. Um, so by this time, I'm three months off being 45. Yeah. And um, I sent one of my first cousins a long message asking if she would consider donating eggs to me. Um, we are sharing genes on my mum's side, her her dad and my mum are brother and sister, and she was four months away from her 40th. Mm -hmm. So my specialist would usually use 36 as a cutoff, um, but I still felt it was worth a shot. So, you know, she was fit and healthy, um, and, and honestly it was my last, my last sort of option because my understanding was to get um, – donated eggs in Australia is about a two-year wait I think it was yeah. and I, I just I can't have this hanging because it does you feel like it's hanging over you as well and the process you know I'd been thinking about this since 39 by this stage I'm nearly 45 um, it's a long time to have it kind of hanging over you as a a project that just seems like it will never come off, you know. And it's not like you were sitting there doing nothing for all that time either with everything you went through in that. Correct. So, yeah, yeah there, there's a lot that happened in between. So um, I sent her a message rather than ask face-to-face -face because if it wasn't something that she wasn't open to, I wanted her to not be put on the spot. I wanted her to be able to consider it, you know, um, and be able to answer in, in a negative way if she needed to. Yeah. But she replied really quickly um, and she said, she, of course she would. Um, she would check with her husband, but she was sure it would, would be fine. Did they have children um, themselves? They've got two daughters. Right. Um, and so that was just amazing that, that she would, that she would do that for me you know at that time we, we weren't you know particularly close like we we were a close family but um 
we didn't used to hang out or anything mm. along those lines. And, you know, she was so selfless about it. She actually messaged me a couple of days later and she's like, um, how did they get the eggs out? <laughs> so she had agreed agreed to give me eggs, not even knowing what that meant to her just because she she really wanted to to help me achieve my dreams. So, um, you know, incredible gift from, from her. Um, so we kind of got things moving. That was, that was sort of the Christmas, January holiday period that, that, that that message happened. Um, so she needed to go have a scan, check if she had follicles, um, because it's all very well to say yes, but if you don't have anything there, you know, um, but she had plenty of follicles. Um, she and her husband had to go and have blood tests. Um, uh, and once all of that was given the green light, then we went and spoke to a nurse um, and to go through the drugs um, and get the stimulated cycle happening. And she was just so calm. Nothing was a bother. Took everything in her stride, you know, just great characteristic for my future child um, to have that chilled kind of nature once again to get my hands on the sperm donor list though we've got to go through all the counseling and and it's a bit bit more to it than last time because it's her and her husband doing their two sessions it's me doing my two sessions and then we had to come together and do two joint sessions Um, and then once the counselor is satisfied that everyone's on the same page then you get given the the list um and i think one of the upsides to all of this happening through covid was that telehealth so you know if if it hadn't have been covid times they would have been a lot more put out um you know having to go a long distance to get to clayton where um the monash ivf office was and so it actually having it in covid was was a really really good thing if you want to put finally a benefit to covid and lockdown (laughs) yeah it just you know they were already doing so much for me it it, um it was good that it it made it just that little bit easier um and you know because obviously they've got busy lives as well and having to burn around to appointments and and all of that would would have been a real hassle um i think the counseling it kind of felt like a bit of a uh a box to check you know just to get that list but it it did bring up a couple of questions um that we we needed to discuss um and you know one was in the event that anything happened to me what happens to the baby yeah um and so that was a good one to to chat on and then another one that we needed to align on was what will we do with excess embryos? Um, because you you have the three options basically: you donate them, donate them on, or you donate them to research, or you destroy them. Yeah. So we needed to to be sure that um, that we were all aligned with with what we would like to do with those. Um, so then. Uh, then we were able to do the egg collection, um, which all went really smoothly. Every step of the way was smooth, really, but I, I dropped her off for the day procedure first thing in the morning, took myself off to Chatty for a, a bit of a wander and um, you know, a good distraction, exactly, um, and then went to collect her a couple of hours later and they managed to get a decent amount of eggs to play with so that was fantastic and I think I think she was really relieved as well because I I think you know if the shoe was on the other foot it would be a lot of pressure you know it's not a cheap thing to do and um you know it could easily have have gone poorly and you know come out empty-handed and so that that wasn't the case thankfully um 
now now we're able to get our hands on the sperm donor list as well um and nothing much had changed from what i viewed you know years earlier mm. it was three a4 pages in landscape um and there was three caucasians on the list probably out of about 40 um yeah. 40 options um so i i think that's a major gap um, I don't know if it's only a Monash IVF Victoria issue or if it's um, or if it's similar in other states, but um, I think there needs to be a, an awareness campaign um, run because you know that that just is really odd to me. So on that list of the three, only one of them really appealed to me. Um, he he was. Um, he was a teacher, double double degree qualified. So I figured, as a teacher, he'd need to be good with people um, yeah. and and good with children, um, and must have been studious to you know do all of that university. Um, unlike me, who did none. <laughs> um, so uh, and you know, it just it said he was normal height, normal build, um, brown curly hair, brown eyes, olive skin. Um, I think it said that he was not religious. Um, what else did it say? It's very high-level basic information at that point. And because the Caucasians get snapped up so quickly, you, you can't mess around. So I um, I got right on to the, the donor team and said, okay, this this is the one that I'm I'm interested in and and honestly if I couldn't have had him I wouldn't have I would have had to come up with another option I would have had to yeah I don't know sweet talk of friends or something <laughs> I would have had to come up with some other option but um but incredibly just like everything else had gone so smoothly he was available he was um uh he needed to be compatible with both of us um which he was um, from a medical standpoint um so we we were able to snap him up um so of the eggs that were fertilized five were done um, were a success wow. um three made it to day five um and then it was suggested by my specialist to do the um the the, the testing of the embryos which um has been in the media not that long ago, um, actually. Um, two were perfect and one had a, a chromosome that was inconclusive. Um, so um, I've got, uh, so I had the one um, transferred and I've got the, the other two on ice um, yeah. as well. Um, so transfer day ended up being a really auspicious day. I don't know if you remember last year where we had that super blood moon, um, oh, yeah. which was the total total lunar eclipse um, in May last year. Um, and so I stood outside under the moon just willing everything to be okay. Um, I was booked in for a blood test. I think it was the Monday, so you know, obviously a couple of weeks after the embryo transfer. But by the Friday, I was running out of some of the drugs that um, my specialist had me using. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to go and get more of these drugs if it hasn't if it hasn't worked, even though I was confident that it had. So I did a home pregnancy test on the Friday morning and um, and it came through with the, the strong double lines. Um, so... Yeah, I was I was thrilled. Um, I I felt you know everything from my my beautiful cousin through to just every step of the way, everything was just green light, green light, green light, working, um, you know, working really seamlessly. Um, so yeah, I was confident. Um, it was all confirmed by the the blood test. Um, my HCG levels were through the roof, which was a real concern because of the last twin pregnancy um and and it you know I can't imagine you know at that point I didn't know how hard 
having a baby was, but certainly I knew that doubling it was going to make it a lot harder. Um, And uh, anyway, I started feeling the same symptoms as as when I was pregnant with Beatrice, so I was pretty confident that it was a girl. Um, I did the the NIPT NIPT test um, and got the sex confirmed really early along with the confirmation that everything was okay. So, yes, it was a girl, um, which is great because this is definitely a girl house. Um, You know, we already have, my brother has, boys um so for my mum it was really nice that um that it was going to be a girl um my obstetrician was the same as last time I absolutely loved this man he was just so beautiful with me last time and and there was no way I was going in uh with anyone else in mind um so we decided really early. He he was stepping up my appointments just to help alleviate stress and anxiety, which I was going to say did amazing. you get a lot of anxiety throughout. I I wasn't. I was really calm. I think mm-hmm. um, I was just in a completely different space in my life, and um, yeah, I I wasn't anxious until the end. Um, you know, really calm throughout um and i i had said to him that i had thought i would prefer to have a a planned cesarean than to Mm -hmm. go into a natural birth again after what happened and he completely agreed so the the date was locked in for 39 weeks um and the birth date was going to be 2 2 22 and as someone who works with numbers that was just too perfect um so another reason to be excited about everything um everything went along seamlessly um the only issue i had was really bad heartburn um and really bad uh, fluid retention my feet um were my feet and my ankles were enormous like i couldn't even wear thongs on my oh, feet no. they were they were massive. <laughs> um, so um, I think once I got to 12 weeks, because I had sort of sworn my cousin um, to secrecy uh, and she wouldn't tell anyone anyway, but her mum maybe might tell people. So yeah. we had sworn her to secrecy as well. <laughs> um, so once I had the 12 weeks scan, um, I started to tell people. And um, one of the best memories, I think, of my entire life was telling my aunties and my girl cousins the news. So we we got together um, at a cafe one afternoon and, you know, because of COVID, we hadn't seen all that much of each other. So it was all sort of organised under, you know, we should catch up. We hadn't seen each other for so long. Let's have an afternoon tea. And... Um, so once everyone had arrived, I excused myself off to the bathroom and um, ordered a bottle of champagne for the table. And um, by the time I got back, the champagne arrived and it was like, oh, what, what's going on? I said, oh, we should celebrate, you know, um, finally being able to catch up. And um, so I was pouring out the glasses and handing them around. And then I just had this really pathetic little glass in front of me. And one of my cousins said, hey, um, you need to top your glass up. And I said, oh, I think, um, I think it's uh, frowned upon to be drinking when you're pregnant. And she's like, what? <laughs> and her mum was next to me and she's like, what? <laughs> and then um, I said, yeah, I'm pregnant. Everyone starts screaming and la- like crying and laughing and cheersing and, you know, half the table already knew because it was my cousin um donor and her mum and her sister and then and my mum was there and um so yeah probably more than half the table knew but um but yeah everyone's screaming and crying and cheersing and it was just the best um and then um one of the girls said well how and I was able to point to our cousin and say because of 
and then more crying and screaming and you know everyone was just losing it it was um it was so happy and and special to to be doing it together you know it was it was a really nice thing for our family to to share and um I think it you know brought us closer together and uh yeah awesome experience so you know everyone was really supportive family friends colleagues you know I was not um I mean, everyone knew I was single and, and I think you you don't have to be in the medical profession to realise that someone who's in their mid-40s is um, using their own eggs or, you know, like mm. most people I think realise that there's a bit of um, science um, helping. But everyone was has been amazing and supportive and I think, um, you know, a common thread that I'm hearing in, in your podcasts has been, you know, um, if anyone can do it, you can, is what mm-hmm. everyone's hearing from people when they're telling their news and, and you know, it's just, um, you know, strong, independent, capable women just seems to be the common common thread when I'm listening to, to the podcast. So now I'm in the third trimester. I go for my 35-week checkup with my obstetrician and it was a Wednesday, um, and it was my last week of work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was hitting 36 weeks on the Friday, um, and then I was scheduled to have her at 39 weeks. So I was going to have a few weeks to then start getting organised. And so I went along on the Wednesday, um, and my obstetrician had been on holidays. Otherwise, I'd perhaps have seen him a week or two before. Um, but this time when he checked my blood pressure, it was high, um, which it never had been. And he was always so calm. I, I didn't get that I was in a dangerous position or, or anything because he, I mean, obviously he's not going to go, <gasps> no, he's, he's, he can't do that. But, um, he said, okay, I'm going to send you over to the pregnancy assessment unit, um, for them to monitor you. Um, they, you know, check your um, blood and urine and all sorts, monitor the blood pressure. Um, and so I sat around for ages and then um, one of the nurses said, oh, we're going to admit you um, because uh, it seemed that I had preeclampsia. Right. So I, I thought they were admitting me, you know, for monitoring till say the morning so you know by this stage it's early afternoon of the Wednesday and so I I was in a shared room because you don't get your own room um, until the babies arrived so I was in a shared room and sort of hanging around and um, then a midwife came in and and she said all right you're locked in for Friday what 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 on friday um and you know it it was my last week of work i hadn't fully handed things over um i was meant to be getting the baby seat fitted that afternoon um i hadn't packed a bag for the hospital uh i was meant to be having my hair done that saturday it was my baby shower on sunday (laughs) all Mm -hmm. of these things you know um you know despite the kind of the shock and the surprise and, and the small amount of disappointment that she wasn't going to have her 2-2-22 birth date, I, um, I was actually glad because it was then only two more sleeps till I met her um, because with work winding down, I had just started to have a little bit of anxiety creeping in. Um, you know, you, you're hyper aware of movement, um, the baby's movement, and um, so... It, it was, uh, and I had just said to mum uh, that week, oh gosh, I don't know how I'm going to do another few weeks of this. So I was actually excited that I was going to get to meet her sooner. So my beautiful OB was um, at the helm and, and working on, on getting her out. And, um, you know, I was a bit anxious, a bit nervous um, until. I heard her cry, mm-hmm. um, and then I was like, "Okay, that's good. 
off she goes with the pediatrician and um mum was able to cut the cord which was mm-hmm. really cool and um but then I was on that table for a long time and and my obstetrician was saying okay a little bit of pressure now and uh, my I was bouncing around on that table and apparently um, the placenta was stuck on scar tissue from Beatrice's birth mm-hmm. and um, like up under my bust around my ribs it was where he was having trouble freeing it um, and he kept, yeah, just kept on saying a bit more pressure, a bit more pressure and it was really hard work to to get that placenta out and I've spoken to a lot of women since who had similar issues or, or I just feel like this sort of thing is really is not about. talked about because um, it can be quite dangerous. You know, it was really close to needing a hysterectomy wow. kind of situation. Yeah. Um, and because of the preeclampsia um, and the blood pressure issues that I already had plus having to manage the pain that was going on with with the um, cesarean, uh, the anaesthetist just kept on plying me with drugs. So by the time they put her on me, because apparently they put them on you to feed because that helps free the placenta, I didn't realise. Okay. But, but she was on me and I just was out of it, you know, from all the drugs and I was felt, why are they putting her on me? You know, I didn't feel safe to to have her to have her there and she was perfect by the way she was obviously four weeks early and um all she needed was some glucose she didn't need to go to special care or anything so that was awesome yeah so finally the they got the placenta out and sent me off to um to the um recovery area and um they just couldn't get me under control. Like I was shaking like a crazy amount of shaking. Um, it was the same. Frightening. I, I honestly thought I was going to die. I knew that she was okay because she was with my mum and with the midwife elsewhere. So I was just in recovery by myself and this nurse just was trying to get me right and she was sweating and the other there was these doctors and nurses who were watching from a distance obviously they weren't just leaving leaving me with this girl but um you know this girl said to a doctor or a nurse who came past oh should I try blah blah and he's like "Mm, maybe I'm like oh my god I don't want to hear maybe you know you from a Mm. medical professional you want to hear yes or no um I, I was a mess. I was thinking I don't have a will in place. Like I was really thinking dark thoughts because I've never felt so um, bad in my life. So it took a few hours in there. Um, unbeknownst to mum, she had no idea what she just thought it was normal recovery time. You know, no one had told her what was going on. And, um, yeah, it was, it was horrible. And I think, you know, when I was speaking to my obstetrician about it, um, later, he said, "You know, cesareans are serious surgery, and with any usual serious surgery, you don't see any of that recovery. Like, you don't see any of the trying to work things out or trying to apply you with different drugs to to get you right. So it's it's quite scary to um, to have to go through and come out of it. Yeah, I, I, it really affected me. I, I remember being in bed at I don't know." 2am when I was home and maybe um, Eve was about a month old at that point and I, I just started looking through my phone because I hadn't even looked at my phone at photos or videos of because mum and the midwife had been taking pictures and, and whatnot and I just remember looking at these photos and looking at the video of her coming out and just I still haven't quite got the right word for it but just so much can go wrong in that moment and I just had this humbling feeling or this not appreciative grateful 
I don't know, hashtag blessed gets thrown around a lot these days. <laughs> but, you know, I just felt all of those things. I just felt yes. so lucky um, to to have a healthy baby at the end of it. Um, yeah, it was a pretty amazing. long journey to get to that. So I think hashtag yeah. blessed is very appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's a killer, that one, but sometimes it, it really does fit. And so how old is Eve now? So Eve is eight months tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, she's she's been amazing. She's such a, a calm, good baby. Um, I think um, there's, there was, there's only been a couple of nights where I've really had genuine all-nighters with her. Um, one was the night before my birthday, which wasn't, <laughs> wasn't a very nice birthday present from her. Um, but um, but yeah, she's she's been she's been amazing. I think I couldn't have ended up with a, a better baby if I'd if I'd tried. Yeah. And is it everything that you thought it would be? Yeah, it is. It's it's um. I mean, it's all-consuming. It's exhausting. Um, I feel like, you know, doing it alone. I think, in some ways, might be easier than than um, having a partner. I know certainly, the first sort of six months, you know, you, you you're it. Like, mm. even if you had a partner there, okay, a partner could cook or make you a cup of tea or something like that. <laughs> would be handy but um you know I think um I think it would be really hard to do with a partner I I feel like there'd be a lot of resentment and everyone's tired and snappy and yeah I I think in in some ways it's maybe been a bit easier to to do it on my own and you know I should be careful when I say doing it on my own because my mum has helped heaps um she she stayed with me so I was in hospital I think five nights in the end I asked for an extra night because I just didn't feel ready to um come home yet cesarean by yourself yeah yeah and my obstetrician said that my recovery was probably a day behind a usual cesarean because of the placenta issues so um having that extra day was good but um mum lives so uh, in the when was it like from when I started this journey I was living a long way away from my family and then um by the time I had um Beatrice I was living sort of 10 minutes from everyone five five ten minutes from everyone so um you know I had mum just down the road um and so she was with me for the first couple of weeks and helping with supermarket shopping and you know mums just see stuff that needs doing around the house and get on with it you know washing bottle cleaning whatever um so yeah I'm doing it on my own but but she has been amazing um an amazing help for sure brilliant so if you look back now is there anything you think you'd do differently um it's hard to say because if I did anything differently, I would have a different baby to Eve. So, um, and, you know, perhaps I would be in a different place as well. So I think we came to each other at the right time. Um, you know, the, um, everything just went so smoothly. Um, it was, it, it was just meant to be. And I think, you know, it got to my first my first mother's day and um i messaged my cousin and i said you know if it wasn't for you i wouldn't have today and she just said she was always destined to be your daughter you know just such a selfless way of um of looking at it and um and so yeah it's 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 been wonderful for so many reasons and um I haven't laughed as much as, you know, we're just, she makes me laugh all the time and, um, you know, that's only going to keep 
keep getting better as she's getting older. And um, so, yeah, we're having a really nice time together. I think um, I've been lucky to, um, I'm going to have 12 months off um, by the time I go back in January. So it's been awesome to have that quality time. Yeah. How the hell I'm going to juggle going back to work with, with her is freaking me out a little bit, but that's a problem for another day. This future <laughs> do it. problem. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I think um, I, I do I do experience, I mean, I'm a bit of a, a warrior by, by nature and uh, you, the worry that you have is like nothing else you've, ever worried about before mm-hmm. I think um when you've got a, a little baby to look after and you know just worrying about every last detail I don't know maybe I think it's all part of it every, all, all mums sound like they worry about stuff but no it's it's been wonderful I think um you know there there's no perfect time or no right time to have a, a a baby I think you know you're never going to be perfectly ready or you know you just gotta I think take that leap of faith and and go for it well I was going to ask if you had any advice but I think that's it yeah yeah I think I think it's it's an amazing journey if, if um if it's something that you truly want just go for it, it it's fabulous well, thank you so much for sharing your incredible story and I'm so glad you've got your beautiful Eve at the end of it. I think a lot of people thank get a lot out of uh, you sharing this story. Oh, great. That's awesome. I, I, um, I hope so. I'm Alicia and this is the No Need for Prince Charming podcast, bringing you stories of Australian solo mums who created their own happy ending. If you like what you heard, please follow or subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes and leave a like, a review or share with your friends to help others find it easier. Bye for now.